Hello everyone, welcome back one more time to Project 25. If you are new here, welcome. And if you are a returning listener, thank you so much for being here again. I hope that you are doing well. And if you aren't, I hope that at least you're giving yourself some grace. Honestly, I feel like I've been struggling a little bit in the last couple of weeks with everything that's going on. It is hard to stay positive when the world is on fire and there are wars happening around us and like, I don't know man, pretending like nothing is happening isn't the way to go. Honestly, like I was at this workshop a couple of days ago and the instructor, she was saying like, you know what, my brain is like jello in the last couple of weeks and one of the other attendees, he was saying that, you know what, like it's the It affects us even though we are not experiencing it firsthand because there's so much information out there and we're just seeing it on social media, like just, you know, unraveling in front of our eyes, like it's a lot and like we see this information, but we feel useless because we feel like we can't do anything because we're far away, you know, like being far away from the conflict. It's also very common to think we can do anything to help out, but small actions count spreading awareness or donating to relief funds or sending emails are small ways we can contribute to help people who are being affected by the current war. So, not to get political, (laughs) but honestly, I have a platform, so I'm gonna use it and I will leave some resources on the episode description if you want to check them out and see how you can support, but also some mental health resources if you are struggling because the world is really crazy right now. But now I'm very pleased to introduce you to Shasia Nurali. Shasia is a diversity and inclusion practitioner who centers equity-deserving people while teaching those in positions of power to use their privilege to advance equity. She also hosts the incredible show, which I highly recommend, the Equity Gap Podcast, and leans into community, anchoring her energy towards amplifying Black, Indigenous, and women of color to show up in the world and take up all the space we desire and deserve. Shasia is also a proud introvert, a dog mom to Ollie, an avid traveler, and foodie. She aims to leave the world better than how she found it, and she's a person whose work and personal life bleeds together in a meaningful and intentional way. She's also neurodiverse and a proud first-generation Pakistani-Canadian Muslim who lives with authenticity, heart, and knows no other way to show up in the world than as herself. It was wonderful to have the opportunity to speak with Shasia about her experiences. We tackle different topics such as getting out of the comfort zone, living up to your potential, the importance of exposing yourself to different experiences and meeting different people, finding purpose, and much, much more. So now, I'm gonna leave you with the episode, and whatever you are, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Project 25 was born out of the obsession that we have with figuring things out. Being a 25-year-old or a 20-something is a lot. It's fun and exciting, but also confusing and weird. It's an age where we realize that maybe the goals we had for ourselves weren't really ours to begin with, an age of tons of learning and unlearning, and an age of frequently asking ourselves, what am I doing with my life? And that leaves us with a lot of uncertainty. 
I'm Andrea Juarez, and I created this project when I hit my quarter-life crisis. <laughs> Looking for answers, I decided to ask my family members, friends, and people I admire about their experiences being 25. What has changed, what they've learned, and their advice for the new generation of 20-somethings. Welcome, Shazia. Thank you. To Project 25. I'm very excited. I read about you. I read some articles. I've listened to your podcast too. I listened to the one where you talk about the things you wish you knew when you were 20. So I think that you already like were kind of prepared to like all oh, the things that you can talk about here. But I am also excited to hear more about your story in this interview. So yeah, I'm just going to start with the ritual and ask you about your age and your title or titles and how would you describe yourself? For sure. So I'm 43. So preparing for this conversation was really funny because it really put me down memory lane going through old memories and pictures and trying to remember that time of my life. It felt like almost was 20 years ago. So it's kind of wild to think back at that point in time. Professionally, my title is Program Manager for Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging for NMAX, which is, you probably would know, but for anyone that isn't based in Calgary, a electricity company here in the city. And I guess outside of that, I'm also like a really active volunteer and community member. I do a lot in the space of mentorship and a lot with relation to learning and development and facilitation. And I sit on an advisory group for a platform called Accelerate Her Future. I do some facilitation and training for my religious community, which is um, the Ismaili Muslim community. And I do facilitation on this program called Future Ready Initiative. It just supports anybody that's in the community to navigate through different stages of life to support them in achieving goals and whatever it is that they desire. And I also have a podcast, as you mentioned, the Equity Gap podcast, and it's gone through a couple of iterations in the last four years, almost five years that I've been running it. And initially, it started off as a passion project that my former coworker and like really good friends, Susie and I started because we started wanting to talk about our experience experiences being racialized women in corporate and how we just never saw ourselves in representation within leadership and how difficult that was. Susie is Korean Canadian and I'm Pakistani Canadian. And so we had a lot of overlap in some of our experiences. And that's what we initially started the podcast on and it was called The Color Gap. And I took it solo uh, just shortly after 2020 because Susie had a shift in priorities with with life and with small kids and had to really make some adjustments. And I focused a lot on what I called kind of unconventional career advice. And it was really focused on Black, Indigenous, and women of color because I think that our careers are just not the same as our white counterparts and the advice shouldn't be the same in terms of the things that we have to navigate through. And in the last, I think it's been probably six months now, I made the decision to pivot it to calling it the equity gap. And it's because I really believe that equity is a really misunderstood concept uh, working in the space now. Formally, for the past few years, I've seen it really be overlooked in terms of how conversations happen and why there's so much of a disconnect in race relations and dialogue around different intersections of identities because people often don't come at it from the lens of equity. And so I want that platform to really be able to shed light and to, you know, educate and to inform folks so that they can be better 
specifically in their allyship. And the focus of the podcast is really around gender and race and other intersections of marginalization, but primarily a lot of it from my own lived experience as someone who is a child of immigrants and first generation Canadian, Pakistani Canadian, Muslim. I'm also recently discovered I'm neurodiverse with ADHD. And so I have a lot of labels that I carry that I like to be able to use my lived experience to help shed light on why equity is so important in the workplace specifically. And then outside of that, I'm also a dog mom to the most adorable, hilarious rescue dog named Ollie, who just took over my whole heart about seven years ago is when I adopted him. And I've never been allowed to have a pet because my parents were very against it growing up in an immigrant household. It was like an absolute refusal, but he takes up a lot of energy and time and a lot of money. So I have to like, you know, work an extra (laughs) side job and side hustles to pay for his dog walker when I'm at the office and to pay for, you know, his his everyday existence. And a fun fact about me, I, I don't know how fun it is, but my name in Arabic, the translation actually means unique. So I always feel like how am I living up to that in my day to day? I always think about that. And I do think I'm a bit off the beaten path uh, in terms of my life and my experiences. And so I think my aunt who named me would be proud of of who I've kind of become. I love that. I just wanted to like follow up some things that you said. Yeah, like your podcast, I think it's incredible because usually the career podcasts or like advice, most of them are towards like a certain audience, right? Like the dominant mm-hmm. culture. So yeah. it's like, okay, but um, I don't think they've experienced uh, um, discrimination of like, especially mm-hmm. if you're a woman and you're a person of color, like it's completely different, right? Mm-hmm. So please note that your podcast is really appreciated. And also dogs are expensive. Dogs are yeah. expensive. <laughs> So like, I don't expensive. have any dogs. I have a cat, but like I have friends who have dogs, and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't think I could. Like, <laughs> but no, thank you very much for sharing all of that. Now I want to ask you. You know, you do so many things, and in your podcast too, you've talked about a little bit about your experiences, like in terms of like your education and your career, mm-hmm. and something that you said on your podcast about being twenty-five is, you know, one lesson that you learn is that you know, rest doesn't have to be earned. You mm-hmm. can rest just because. So I want to ask you, what did you do when you were 25? Did you get a lot of rest? Or like, <laughs> were you studying? Were you working? What were your hobbies? What kept you busy around that time? It's so funny because I look back at that time of my life and I didn't realize that I was walking around in the world with like undiagnosed ADHD. And so I really think about that period of time as just feeling really like I wasn't living up to anything that I expected of myself. And I almost didn't have a lot of direction or focus. And a lot of the focus back then was around trying to prove that I was worthy and capable by pursuing the things that I thought were necessary from almost like an external checkbox perspective. And 25 was an interesting year, especially because it's when I made some really pivotal decisions for myself. I was a couple of years before I turned 25, I decided to leave the college that I was studying at, which was Mount Royal College at the time, and pursue a basically a two-year diploma um, at SAIT here in Calgary that was going to lead into a degree program at the University of Lethbridge. And it was a little bit of a, a moment of recognizing 
I think I felt like a little bit of a failure because I very vividly remember going into the guidance counselor's office at Mount Royal. This was back in the day they used to make you go and have conversations with the guidance counselor if your grades were not up to par. And the guidance counselor sat me down and told me that I should not bother to pursue a a full like four-year bachelor's degree because I just didn't have like what it took to make that happen. And I'm a really stubborn person and I really like to prove people wrong. And so I was like, let me show you. And my brother had done the similar path. And I was like, I'm going to pursue that and see if it lights me up in the right way because I was doing psychology as a major and I just was floundering and I wasn't focused and I, you know, wasn't capable of really, you know, being, being in it. And I was like, younger and just sort of just listless and floating around. And so at I think 25 was when I I was working at state as a started up as a summer student a couple of years before that. And they had kept me on while I was going to school there. And I had finished my diploma and I was just entering into my period of time there where I was leaving state working wise and I was moving into the temp position at Shaw Communications in their training department. And I started at University of Lethbridge doing my degree after finishing my business diploma. And I did really, really well in the business diploma. And it was possibly a combination of just being a little bit of an older student and having a lot more focus in terms of business being something I really, really loved and enjoyed the classes a lot. And so it was just this really pivotal time in my life where everything was about trying to achieve something that made me feel a sense of worthiness, but also coupled with being 25 and just having no hobbies except for partying. <laughs> like just being like, yeah. So I mean, I, I never regret it because I look back and I'm like, I really lived very full in terms of traveling, like to the extent that I could with the limited budget that I had. But like all of my friends and I, we just really, we took advantage of being young and we really, you know, we did it all. And so I don't regret that. It just took me a lot longer to get on the path that I wanted to be on and a lot of sort of detours to get there. And I don't regret it now because I recognize that I definitely had that balance back then where it was just a lot more about fun and rest, as you noted. And I didn't understand the concept of rest as something you didn't have to earn back then. That's something that's like really new, a concept that I've sort of started to understand a little bit more as I've been in circles of influence of specifically of, of Black women that, you know, speak to the work of Audre Lorde and talk about rest as and self-care as kind of a form of activism and something that, especially for a lot of Black activists back in the civil rights period of time in America, rest and self-care was just this act of rebellion in some capacity. And so it's a lot of reframing that I've had to do in my own life to realize how much I really need and deserve that and not even deserve that. It's just something that you, you know, that should exist because we're all operating in this capitalistic society that doesn't really give us a lot of space for that. But back then it was just about partying and trying to find a bit of direction and figure out what I was really doing and walking around very unaware that I had ADHD and it wasn't it wasn't me. It was something that my brain just didn't operate the same way that everybody else did. And listened to a podcast recently, a Mel Robbins podcast, and she talked about her own ADHD diagnosis that also happened later in life. And she talked about a lot of women like her and like myself that are kind of like the lost 
generation where we had no idea and we walked around for a long time really self-critical and feeling like we just were never quite matching up to other people's expectations. And that's the only thing that I think back about that time and wish I had given myself a little bit more compassion as I was navigating through things, but I had no idea. And so it was just a time of trying to figure out what that path was while also enjoying myself a lot. Yeah, it's good that you had like that balance too, right? Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned like going to Satan and then completing your degree because I did that actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> I was like, I don't know how people do four years in a row. How do they do that? Maybe yeah. I can get a diagnosis. <laughs> but but thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And you were just saying that, you know, that when MRU, like the counselor, they approached you and they were like, no, don't even bother trying. And you were like, well, now, like, I'm going to prove you wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you were also having fun and trying to figure it out. So I also wanted to ask you, what do you think back then? What was your vision of the world? And you said you were Muslim. So did you follow like your religion? And what was like a big belief back then? Or like, did you have a mantra or a motto? Yeah, it's such a good question. I don't think I had any sort of clarity back then around the direction outside of wanting to do something that I thought was going to be really interesting and fun. And so the business sort of degree and that readjustment and that focus was primarily initially wanting to do something within HR because I had worked in the corporate training department at Shaw and it was just really interesting to be around these HR professionals that were doing something that felt like it was really meaningful in some way because they were a lot of the training that they did was on leadership development. And I thought that was really interesting. But I was also very, very, I mean, I hate the word shy because I think it was often weaponized when I was younger. Realizing now that I was like, I'm just an introvert and I process things really differently. I didn't really think that I was going to ever be capable of being the person that would be standing in front of a classroom facilitating or teaching or training. But I wanted to be the person that was doing the stuff behind the scenes in terms of developing the learning and sort of thinking about the pieces and how they kind of all fit together. And I think about even my childhood when I was younger, I used to really love watching old TV shows on like CBC, I think it was called Venture. It's like a marketing show here in Canada that I'm sure people, if you found it on YouTube, you could they probably would remember, but it was a lot about business focused and around how businesses marketed themselves. And so I was kind of was pursuing the thing that I thought would be the most interesting without a lot of real depth of insight or knowledge into why. It was just kind of influenced by the different people and situations that I found my self in. And I yeah, I grew up Ismaili Muslim, which is a sect of Islam that I would say is probably one of the more progressive sects of the religion in terms of the fact that we have a spiritual leader that sort of interprets the Quran into modern day times. And I have a lot of admiration for the religious community that I'm a part of. I'm still kind of involved in the stuff that I do from a volunteer perspective. And then to kind of please my mother, whenever it's necessary, I have to show up and go. Um, but I'm, I, yeah, but I think a lot of what it was, was it grounded me in a lot of like really core centered beliefs about just how to be a good human. And a lot of the religion uh, teachings are very much focused on philanthropy and using your life in some way for service. And I think that was also passed down from my dad. He was very service oriented and that was a really big part. No matter, we didn't have any money growing up and like we never really did. And he just was always so selfless and giving of his time 
time and energy, especially back to the community. So that was a real anchor, but I felt like an outsider a lot of the time within my own religious community because people within the Ismaili Muslim community are incredibly well educated. They're very high achieving. Every top 40 under 40 list that you see has at least three or four Ismailis on there. And so I always felt like, like kind of a loser, to be honest, in comparison to them. And I, you know, because of my ADHD and because of being young and sort of, you know, I didn't have the most refined kind of approach to life in terms of decision making, in terms of money habits, any of those things. I was just, I would say more rebellious than anything. And I think I often felt like that was that part of me that just wanted to have fun and just kind of live as a teenager or early 20s person would, right? And so the religious element was something that kind of felt like an obligation, even though I felt a lot of deep, immense respect for the learnings and the teachings and the community. I didn't always feel like I quite fit. And so there's been a long journey and a process of kind of figuring out where I could find my place in the community and kind of set a few boundaries, even with my mother around kind of engaging. Yeah, the hardest. So hard. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so I don't know if I necessarily had a philosophy on life outside of just trying to figure things out. It was very um, self-focused at that time. And so... It was just trying to figure out what was that path that was going to make me feel like I was accomplishing something and that I had something that I could hang my hat on. Thank you for sharing that. And now I want to ask, because you were just talking about that, right? Like you were trying to accomplish something and it's it's a whole phase from your teens to your early 20s. And because I've also heard your podcast where you talked about like big career decisions. And I want to ask you this question Um, I always tell everyone it's very broad, but you can talk all different aspects like your personal life or your career. But yeah, from when you were 25 to this day, what has changed in the world, in yourself, in your personal life, Mm. career, etc.? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think I just really, I I found my strengths and the things that I think I'm really good at. And I've been able to hone in on using that to be of service to other people where I can. And I think a lot of that came from moving into my first like HR role where I was in recruitment for the first three or four years of my HR career. And that was a real place where I think I could start to have a lot more freedom and autonomy in terms of how I navigate my job with recruitment, it had a lot less structure outside of traditional HR roles. And so it was quite beautiful because there was a lot of opportunity to get really connected to people one-on-one and to really recognize the privilege that I had of being able to support them through the job searching process, which is often full of a lot of unknown rules that are really archaic and often and frankly, baked in like white supremacy and things that we don't really talk about. But back then, I didn't really have that concept. I just knew that people were struggling as they navigated through the job seeking process. And so it was kind of the start of me utilizing the things that I could see myself doing to serve and give back to people. And I started a blog and I would start writing about the mistakes that I saw people were making in their job seeking process. And I started to kind of find a little bit of that direction 
from that particular space. But a lot of it was really, I think, rooted in when I graduated from university, which was a lot later. It was probably like 28 or 29 years old. And I had started a job that I thought was a dream job because at that age, I thought traveling to New York and Toronto was a dream job, even though all the other elements of the job were not. It was very logistics heavy. And for someone with ADHD, it's probably not the right type of role to be in. I mean, it was great. It was an oil and gas company I worked for. But there was a moment that was quite pivotal where there was an executive at the organization who was my boss's boss. And he needed to get a visa for a trip that he was taking to China. And his assistant, for whatever reason, wasn't able to go and sort that out for him. So he asked me to do it. And of course, like I'm you know, 28 years old. And this is my first like real corporate job that was like really corporate because Shaw was a lot more casual and this company, oil and gas, it was quite conservative. So I'm not going to say no, but it was one of those weeks in Calgary where it was literally minus 40 degrees like every day for an entire week. And I couldn't drive to downtown because it was so expensive. So I had to take the train to the consulate from the office. And I remember being on the train and standing on the platform and walking over to the consulate doing all of this stuff and thinking to myself, like, I have so much more potential than to be doing this man's errands and to be, um, you know, basically servicing these executives in managing all of their logistics for their roadshows and their travel and all of this stuff. And I was like, this is not what I want my life to be. I don't see myself staying in this kind of capacity for the rest of my life. And it was kind of like the rose colored glasses started to kind of lift. And that was the day that I made the decision to decide to go and apply to grad school and to kind of see if I could pursue an opportunity to sort of combine the things that I really loved about being in business school with combining that with education because of the experience that I had at Shaw with corporate training side. And I thought that's something I could really end up doing. And so within a year, I was 30 and I moved to Vancouver. I started school at UBC and it was completely life-changing. It was only four years of my life, but it was the um, amount of growth that I had in those four years was really, really incredible. And it set me off on this path of then getting my first job in HR which was recruitment and then moving into my second experience doing the same thing, starting the blog, moving back to Calgary and working for ATB Financial for six years. I started off with them as a recruiter and it was all so like life-changing. It was like this bit of a domino effect because I started to hone in on my authentic voice and the things that were really strengths for me and opportunities for me to be able to utilize what I was really excited about. But I also recognized that, and it's so interesting because I do a workshop sometimes about career planning and strategy. And it's very much focused on this idea that it doesn't need to be a ladder that you climb, but rather the concept of kind of a squiggly line career where it can be focused on the things that you're really passionate about, that you're really excited about, what gets you curious about things. And that's exactly what my career ended up being when I made that decision to kind of bet on myself at the age of like 29, I think it was when I first made that choice. And then at 30, I drove out to Vancouver with my brother and my boyfriend at the time and lived in this tiny little 400 square foot, not that my condo is that much bigger now, but apartment on residence at UBC that 
it was just such an experience. And that was the first time I had actually even lived outside of my own home, away from my parents. And I didn't have a job. It was the first time in many years. I was 14 when I first got my first ever job at McDonald's and had worked ever since while I was going to school. And so it was just such an experience to be there and have all of this freedom and this time and then be focused on this very unique experience in grad school, which was so unlike anything I had experienced in any education that I had done. It was a master's in education. And the way that UBC did it was so much more focused on kind of social justice. And I had no idea that that's what it was going to be. And at the time, I was like, what is this? This is not what I signed up for. And I had no idea how full circle that would come. Many years later, and the experiences of being exposed to what I was exposed to at UBC was just so life-changing. So I don't even know if I answered your question. I feel like I just like went in so many detours, but it was very much started at that point of kind of making that decision to bet on myself after realizing that I was not living up to my potential. Yeah, that you were capable of so much more. And mm-hmm. also, I feel like we are fed this idea of like, yeah, you have to climb the corporate ladder and blah, blah, blah. I'm 26 now, but like when I was 23, that's when I was like, um, no, I don't think I want to, to climb the corporate ladder. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's good that you learned it so young. <laughs> I was like, no, I think I just want like my job and then focus on the things I love outside of work. Because mm-hmm. to me, it was like, you know what, you can find your passion not just on your job, right? Like in many different mm-hmm. things, in your hobbies, in your volunteering. So that one for me was like, yeah, it was, it just completely changed my mindset. And what you just mentioned too about UBC focusing on social justice. I think something similar happened to me too. We have so much things, so many things in common. <laughs> but like I went to Royal Roads University, but it was mm-hmm. part-time, but it was in Victoria and it was online. So I did work when I was doing my degree, but it's a degree in professional communications, but it was in Mm -hmm. the school of communications and culture. So Mm. we had these different classes like communications for indigenous context or Mm. like transcultural communications. And they also address many things like from the social justice side, because I think that intercultural communications, like it overlaps. I don't feel like you can do it without addressing social justice. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really hard not to do it. So that for me was also like mind blowing. Like Mm -hmm. I am an immigrant. So just learning all these things and just the way your culture is wired to think a certain thing and all these narratives in the media and you know Mm -hmm. so it was just really interesting and yeah I think we had kind of like a similar experience into what you just mentioned Mm -hmm. Um, that's why I have so much respect for people who work in the IA and also in social justice and that's Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's just really important and also makes you think about all the humanity in all of us Absolutely. Thank you very much for sharing that. Now, what do you do and what are your beliefs? I think everything that I do is is very much grounded in the belief that there needs to be solutions that are really focused, as I mentioned, on equity. Because I think about the historical context of a lot of communities in the country and how so many people just don't get the same head start in life. And so I use that sort of lens on equity in the work that I do to try to influence in a corporate environment around diversity and inclusion. And I find that a lot of organizations are really scared to go there when it comes to the conversations on equity because it requires kind of a deeper 
lens on solutioning that is not a surface. And it's a little bit of a struggle, I'll be honest, in the city of Calgary in such a conservative province where you're always kind of walking the line with upholding a sense of comfort in organizations with that desire to sort of bring that social justice lens into the work that you do. And I'm actually doing an episode that I'm trying to write right now for the podcast on why people shouldn't get into DNI work because it is so it's it's constantly a pull on your sense of integrity because you know how you want the world to look and behave and be. And it's just not always possible in the context of a corporate environment. And I it's always that sort of balance of trying to convince people that investing in people and really understanding how to meet people in a place for allowing them to bring out their most authentic selves and have authentic expression in the workplace is your biggest sort of game-changing strategy. But a lot of organizations don't want to hear that because they think that it's more about putting in rules and structure and having these environments where you have to kind of give people a bit of the sameness in terms of the the rules that apply and how you approach the day-to-day. Like I've worked in a couple of unionized environments and it's always so interesting to me because unions in their their heart of the unions are really social justice focused. And I find a lot of them now, especially the ones that I've been exposed to, are really focused on supporting those that are in the majority, which is often white men. And so how do you take into account people who have very different experiences from an accessibility lens, from a racial equity lens, all of these things. And so my work and what I believe now is really rooted in how do I contribute in some capacity to making the world a more equitable place? And I kind of take it in two approaches. So it's my nine to five work that obviously pays my bills and allows me to pay my mortgage and maintain my Ollie's health. He had like a $12,000 surgery last year. So I recovered from that, but now I'm like rebuilding a little bit. As we mentioned, dogs are very expensive. So the nine to five obviously manages, you know, to support some of that. And then outside of it, the work that I do in the space of mentorship and really around the podcast as well is a lot of it is focused on the advice that I didn't know that I needed when I was younger and the perspectives that really center Black and Indigenous and women of color and our experiences and how those are just not often acknowledged in the workplace and often they're overlooked. And I feel like a broken record, to be honest, a lot of the time. And the older I get, the less politically correct I am about my disdain for it because I work in a lot of spaces within HR. And those spaces are often primarily with a lot of white women that have never obviously had to experience the same levels of inequity as Black and Indigenous women in particular do. And it's often not something that is thought of, or there's a, it's sort of a a lack mentality that a lot of people have within HR because HR is still often seen as like a cost center and not necessarily a strategic partner to the business. And so I spend a lot of my energy trying to amplify that message around equity. And my focus is around how do I contribute to that so that you know, my niece, my goddaughter, that they can grow up in a world where they don't have to think about these things. And I don't even know if that is feasible in terms of changing the structures of those corporate environments, because a lot of it is really predicated on, you know, capitalism and the things that 
we as an individual person can't necessarily influence immensely. So where I focus a lot of my energy outside of the nine to five is around that empowerment factor. How do I teach young women particularly about the environments that they're going to be up against, but then teach them to navigate them from a place of confidence and worthiness and recognizing that it's not them, that their imposter syndrome is not theirs to own, that it's the system, it's not them. And how do I use my life experiences in order to make things easier for women and girls that are coming after me and, you know, gender diverse people as well. Like I think about the inequities and the the ways in which people have to navigate the world when they don't fit the box. And I just have such a passion around making that a little bit easier for people. And so even though I did take a bit of a pivot with the podcast, not necessarily focusing as much on the career strategy pieces, I infuse a lot of my own perspectives, my learning, my whole world, my TikTok algorithm, everything is like very curated around equity and inclusion and diversity. And so I'm like just a knowledge hoarder and I just, I'm not even a hoarder. I take it all in and I like to share it in whatever way I can. And I always say like with the podcast, it's like a small imprint on the internet, but I feel really proud of the ability to be able to have very honest conversations. And I think the desire that I have to have authentic expression really gets to come out in that platform because it's mine and nobody is necessarily controlling it. I've had people who have tried to use it to weaponize it against me in the workplace, not where I'm at currently, but at a previous workplace. And so I'm a little cautious sometimes about the things that I talk about, but I'm also recognizing that that's the like the irony of that, right? That I'm talking about white supremacy, yet I'm getting in trouble for talking about white supremacy, working and inclusion and diversity. So I just try to put that aside and continue to work on the stuff that I need to do to be able to try to have some influence on the world, whether it's in the context of my corporate dynamic and the work that I do there, or it's outside of that where I can support women to see themselves as being worthy of taking up space and asking for what they deserve, what they desire. And I think a big part of it too is helping to break down the idea as we talked about, that it needs to look like everybody else's path because it doesn't. There's so much fulfillment available when you start to really lean into purpose, when people start to think about using their life in a sense of service. That's a huge element of the work that I like to try to influence. And so wherever I can, I like to sprinkle in that perspective around equity. And that's really like the thing that I I, I think I was born to do. I truly do. That is so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to ask you because you said something, you know, like when people start leaning into their purpose, they can lead a more fulfilling lives. And I want to ask you, how did you start to lean that purpose? I know you spoke about Vancouver a little bit, but mm -hmm. what were some actions or how did you start learning what your purpose was? I mean, Vancouver, I think, was the start of it because I started to find just a lot more strength in my own identity and who I think I knew I could be because I was navigating through all these experiences by myself and building a new sense of community out there and navigating grad school and working and all of that stuff. And so that built a lot of confidence in my sense of resilience in a lot of ways. But I think for me, when I moved back to Calgary as well, and I started working for ATB, it was such a life-changing experience for most of the six years that I was there. It was incredibly fulfilling work. And a lot of it was because I had the ability to do things in a very authentic way and really shape my experiences. It was a very uh, results-focused work environment at the time. I'm not sure if the culture is still the same 
now. It's been a few years since I, since I worked there, but I was really rewarded for being myself there. And that was one of the first times that I had been in an environment where that was the case. And so I'm started to build a lot of community and friendships that were very much rooted in the work that I was doing and the role that I had and how I could really use that to be able to give back to other people. But I also found myself very much falling into the trap of wanting to climb the ladder at that point too in my life. I got all the way up to a director position with them and you know, going into leadership was really great because that was kind of the catalyst for me and Susie to start the color gap and to start talking about our experiences because when I first got into leadership, that's when I kind of had my aha moment around recognizing that I had never had any leaders that looked anything like me. And before that, I think I just kind of accepted it because I didn't know that I could be asking for anything different or that it was possible that the world and my experiences would be more reflective of me. I didn't even know that was even possible. So that was very necessary in terms of my journey. But I think like anybody with COVID, it obviously changed a lot of things. I made the decision to leave ATB in the beginning of the pandemic because I had gotten to a point where I really wanted something that felt different and challenging in a new kind of a way and a new environment. And I really thought to myself that I wanted to use my experiences to be able to teach in a post-secondary environment and give back to the future of HR because I had been around this incredible organization for six years that was doing things very, very differently. I had really great influences in leadership in terms of the people that were at the top um, in executive and great relationships. And they were doing things really differently, really outside the norm of what was traditional in HR. HR. And, you know, since then, I think they've taken a couple of steps back because at the end of the day, they're a bank and they're a business and they're owned by the Alberta government. And so that was kind of a reality of them having to think about long-term sustainability of that kind of innovative approach. But I had made the decision to move into like a much more junior role, took a pay cut because I thought I needed to have this more traditional HR experience on my background so that I could use that to teach in a post-secondary environment. And what that ended up doing for me was me realizing that I didn't need to follow any sort of a path that other people had laid out. It was a great experience, but it was also a very heavy reminder of the fact that that's not what I wanted to do at all. I absolutely hated it. I felt like the police in an HR role, especially in a union environment, it was terrible. It was not a good fit for me. And it worked out great because I did get promoted into a position leading their inclusion and diversity work. But what was most interesting, I think, in terms of my pivot and my real sort of leaning into purpose was when my father passed away two years ago. And it was this kind of a wake-up call for me to realize that I had almost been operating on these sense of rules and ideals of what I thought things should look like based on other people's ideas of what I thought they should be. And I didn't even realize I was doing it for so long. And when he passed, it was such a reminder that you know he lived a really great long life, but it was this reminder of the legacy that he left behind. And when you know, when he passed, it was, of course, you just get flooded with people's memories and their perspectives. And you, you know, walk down memory lane, you're going through photos and nobody ever talked about anything to do with his work at all. And it was always about his sense of service and his community focus and his, you know, selflessness. He did everything for us in this family and for the community. And so that was just this wake up call to be like, this is not like, if it's not the right alignment in terms of the work environment, and if I'm pursuing all of these things, for the sake of a bigger salary. And that's all great. And it obviously more money helps to be able to maintain a certain you know sense of living and being able to prioritize rest and all of those things. But it also 
was not fulfilling when I was pursuing titles over purpose and impact. And I had to have a bit of a conversation with myself around what's more important to me at this time in my life. Is it mental capacity to be able to do the things that I'm really excited about? Is it about being in the right environment that makes me feel safe to do this type of work? And the place that I'm at now, it's definitely that. It's like, I remember I've been there almost a year now and I remember walking in the first couple of months and thinking, oh my God, everyone is so nice here. Like, I'm not used to that. I was used to a really combative environment of being in a very corporate HR role that felt like a rules pusher and it just wasn't me. And even when I moved into the diversity and inclusion role, it was a very tough environment to do that work in because it was predominantly very conservative, rural, white um, employee base that did not like the stuff that we were doing, the amount of combative conversations I would have to have on a regular basis about the work and justifying it with employees. People had a lot of kind of desire to let you know how much they hated it. And so it was really a a gut check for me to say, this is not worth it. It's not worth my mental well-being. It's not worth the long-term sort of effects would be great in terms of financially and all of these things to stay where I was, but it didn't make any sense. And so yet again, I took another pay cut. I took a title change. I moved out of leadership, but I've never been happier because I have a lot more clarity of time and space, a lot more capacity to be able to do great work when I'm there, but to shut it off at five o'clock and to not think about it after that. And it's opened up so much space and energy and time for me to be able to focus on the things that really light me up outside of work and finding more community of people that are really in the same headspace as me. That's been really, really powerful, especially around the community piece, because a number of years ago, I came across this incredible woman. Her name is Dr. Gulnaz Gulnaragi, and she runs a social enterprise called Accelerate Her Future. And I've had the opportunity to mentor with them. I sit on their advisory group now. I do a number of speaking engagements and workshops with them. And Gulnaz was probably one of the biggest catalysts for me to realize that I had the permission to take up space in a way that was really rooted in talking about my experiences, that I shouldn't shy away from talking about being a racialized person or a woman of color, navigating through corporates. Susie and I came across her on Instagram randomly and we had her on the podcast a number of years ago. And it was just such a life-changing conversation for me because that really set off this incredible relationship that I've been able to build with her as well as her team and the community of mentors. I think I've mentored with them now three times. And it's just unbelievable what being around a sense of community of people that are like valued and that are sharing the same types of dialogue and conversations, like the shame completely gets removed away from that. And you start to see a lot of the possibilities of what is available to you. And so I really, I really credit a lot of that sort of sense of purpose and that redirection to losing my dad and the process of navigating through grief and sort of realizing like you've got this one chance to do something that feels really good and feels like it's really taking up your energy in the right way. And then a lot of it was really also connected to that relationship with Gomez and sort of seeing what was possible because I just never had role models that looked anything like me until I met her. And it was life-changing. I tell her that all the time. So <laughs> she's she's probably always blushing when I tell her that, but she's just an incredible role model in ways that I can't even explain how much she's impacted my life. So big That's combination so of things. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about your father. Oh, um, thank you. And now when you said thinking about how you wanted to feel, I recently too read in a book and it said like, when you think about your goals, don't think about how they're going to look. 
Mm -hmm. Like in the outside, but how they are going to feel, like how you're going to feel. And that to me, like it really opened my eyes to, you mentioned too, right? Like, yes, I am guilty still that sometimes at these ages, like, okay, yeah, like external things. But like you said, right? Like, for example, in that job, like everything looked on the outside really great. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on the inside, it's like, oh, no, thanks. You know, so I think it it can be definitely life-changing. and. Even too, when you talked about your experience meeting this woman and seeing all that was available and finding that community, I think that's also like really beautiful because I think that when you have a community, you feel heard and you feel validated. And what you mentioned earlier about you want to share your stories. So for the new generations, they may experience or may not, but you mentioned like it's likely that they can, they will experience the same things as I did. But Mm -hmm. they will be more prepared in terms of how to deal with that. So, yeah, I think that's, yeah, really amazing. I also believe that storytelling and like sharing experiences, like it's a superpower because you never know who will benefit from a conversation or who you're Mm -hmm. going to help with. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing all of your experiences and all the things that you've been through in the last couple of years. And now... You're talking about how you want to support your community and the way you bring your work outside work, you know, your social justice and EDI to the table, not necessarily like, yes, at work in a certain way, but also to your podcast and volunteering. So I want to ask you now, what are your plans for the future? I've had so many dreams for a long time of being an entrepreneur and uh, using all of this experience in, especially in the EDI space to do exactly what I've been doing, but on my own, doing a lot of work with corporations to try to make whatever influence and imprint that I can on, especially for experiences of anyone that's marginalized in those corporate environments. Um, that's really what grounds me in that work is I know that if I can make someone, one person feel a little bit safer at work or seen or like they have someone that they can just, you know, confide in or rely on. That means that I've made an impact in that capacity, even if I can't change the whole system in a workplace. But ideally would love in a number of years to be able to take things out on my own so that I can work with organizations, but do things in a way that's really different. I think about a lot of the solutions that organizations have around, especially the work that they do with respect to leadership development around folks that are marginalized. And there's always a one size fits all approach. And I really love to preach it to anyone that will listen to me that that is not the right way to do things for people that don't fit the majority. And so working with organizations to rethink how they do mentorship, rethink how they do leadership development, that is really, really grounded in supporting marginalized people from a lens of equity. And so that means it does cost them more and it's more time and energy, but the return is so much stronger when you have people who feel like they're not masking all the time and they're not. There's a term specifically in the Black community called code switching, where they're having to adjust vernacular and language and how they show up day to day. Um, in order to fit. And I think we need to throw out the idea of culture fit and really think about how people contribute and add value to the environment and the organization because so much of what I see is the same rinse and repeat of the same kinds of programming and the same kind of solutions. And so I have a lot of ideas that I'm always brewing in my brain around what that could possibly look like. But I do like the idea of doing things a little bit unconventionally and also rooting a lot of the conversations in EDI 
in the stuff that people don't want to talk about in the workplace. A lot of the stuff that I've been doing has been very rooted in, like I said, the level of comfort of, you know, folks in the organization and trying to meet people where they're at. And that to me just doesn't actually address the real issues. And so really rooting the conversations in anti-racism and anti-oppression in decolonizing and really getting to the heart of how do you create real safe spaces for your marginalized employees. And then on top of that, working with specifically Black, Indigenous, and women of color in a kind of career coaching capacity, doing workshops and continuing on with what I've been doing in the last couple of years with speaking engagements and workshops, podcasting, who knows what comes out of that. It's been, you know, four years of kind of trickling in results and downloads and effects. But I think that it's really opened up it's been such a catalyst for me to do the other things that I'm really excited about with respect to the side hustle that I that I use to pay for my dog. Um, so I think more of that. So doing the two-pronged approach, but really trying to approach the kind of nine to five as an entrepreneur, but doing it quite differently than I see other um, EDI practitioners uh, approaching the work today. And so more of the same, but just in my own terms. And I'm going to try to manifest like a lot of money to do that at some point where I can do it without having to be fearful of, you know, not being able to pay my mortgage. That's kind of the goal for the next couple of years is trying to set myself up so that I can make the decision to go out on my own and to do things that are really rooted in my own authentic expression um, through the writing, through the podcast through any sort of speaking engagements and work that I get to do, that is the goal. And of course, always be finding ways to to give back in some capacity. That's very much an anchor. Thank you very much for sharing that. I'm excited for you. Thank you. <laughs> and now I have something that I want to ask you, because during this interview, you also mentioned that, and I go back to what you said about girls and women and people of color, Black, Indigenous, you know, being more prepared to deal with how the system operates, right? And to not internalize them, right? I think that's like the term. When I first started the podcast, I interviewed a woman whose name is Linda Espinosa Valencia. She's also an EDI practitioner. And when I asked her for her advice, For 20-somethings, she said that, you know, if you feel like you are not enough or you have like this imposter syndrome, it's not you. Like it's a whole system that tells that to you and then you internalize it. So please Mm -hmm. don't internalize it, right? And you were talking about how you want to prepare people to not internalize it. Mm -hmm. And because of your experiences and before your diagnosis, if you could go back to when you were 25, Will you change anything or make things different? Or what do you wish you knew? It's a good question because in so many ways, I don't live life with a lot of regrets. I like to be able to look at all of those mistakes and those detours as sort of the necessary path that was there to get me to where I am. I'm also like a very spiritual person. So I really believe in the lessons that come from sort of diving in headfirst into into life in that way. But I do wish that there was more of an opportunity for, for me to have that sense of community when I was younger and to be able to sort of lean into space like this and like you know what I mentioned with accelerate her future because those are those places where I first learned about these concepts of imposter syndrome and you know rest as a form of activism and all of these concepts that I never would have come across or even known what to do with I think even at that age but if it was planted in my head a lot sooner I think I would have made you know fewer mistakes 
steps and maybe gotten to the place of using the purpose for in a different way. I think I internalized so much when I was growing up, especially around the shyness piece, around not being smart enough, not being good enough. And a lot of the things that have gotten me to the place that I am today is been putting myself into the middle of things and just pushing through to make it work because I was excited or passionate about something. I never in a million years would have imagined that I would have gotten to a place where I speak for a living. If that makes sense. Like That's a so lot awesome. of the work. <laughs> yeah. It's like the person that had to do her first public speaking engagement years ago I mean, I couldn't sleep for two weeks because I was so incredibly anxious just doing something within my own religious community and no one even showed up. And so I had like built up all of this energy to do this speaking engagement and literally nobody showed up. This was back in Vancouver. And it was just the amount of energy and time that I put into that because I had internalized so much of the negative self-talk and the self-hatred and not realizing that we're operating in this patriarchy, we're operating in this environment that's really baked in white supremacy that there are things that we should be challenging a lot more when we're younger around the things that we are just fed and that we accept. And I wish I had a little bit more of that when I was younger because I wouldn't have internalized so much of that imposter syndrome. You know, and it's it all worked out the way that it did for a reason. And I'm I'm grateful for getting to the place that I'm at, but I definitely learned lessons the hard way in like every area of my life. And I sometimes wish it was a little less resilience character defining and more privileged focus. Like I sometimes wish it was like a little bit easier, but I also recognize as well that I have so much that I have that other people don't in terms of the access to the things I've had access to and the ability to have been born and raised here without anyone sort of challenging my credentials or my education or all of that stuff, right? It's been it's been a, a hard like one battle in a lot of ways, but a lot of it is really baked in the fact that I'm also incredibly privileged and I recognize that. And so finding that balance of being able to say you know, this is the system that you're in and this is how you can kind of navigate through it would have been great. I don't know that I would have listened back then because I was a little bit of a hot mess. But it would have been nice to have people that were sort of, you know, having that kind of truth and honest conversation back then. But truly, I don't even know if that was that accessible. It almost felt like a little bit fringe back then to be talking about concepts like the patriarchy and white supremacy, because that was just not in the common, you know, rhetoric, right? So, but having more of that sense of community more people that could really see me for who I was really capable of being would have been really great. But I had to go through the journey that I went through for a reason. So it all falls into place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Shazia, what advice do you have for today's 20-somethings? I think it goes back to like questioning the things that we've always kind of just taken at face value. You know, like the stuff that we just don't challenge about the way that the world works. I think 20-somethings have that that space and place in life where you can still be dreamers without a lot of things that are weighing you down. And I think it's really important to get angry about things and to use that anger and channel it in a way that allows you to redirect your skills, your passions, your abilities into something that has an influence on making the world a better place. And, you know, that anger can be channeled in a really beautiful way, especially when you see injustice, you see things that could be really different. We require all of those voices because it's amazing what happens when, especially the rhetoric that I don't know if it's just something that's coming to the surface more now because it feels like it's more acceptable, but 
with everything we're, we're recording this during Pride Month. And it's mind boggling to see how many people are coming out of the woodwork with their deep amount of hate rhetoric that they're throwing yeah. at. And it's like, we need counter voices that really look at people and humanity above everything else. And those voices to challenge how we've been taught to think about religion, how we've been taught to think about, you know, society, like, why do billionaires exist? Why is the world the way that it is? Like, we need 20 somethings to start challenging all of that, start questioning, start getting angry, start talking about it, start channeling that energy into ways in which you can use your skills to be able to make an influence and an impact on the world. Because unfortunately, that's the only way that it's going to change is getting, you know, folks into government, getting folks into positions of influence and power, utilizing whatever privilege and access we have to um, help lift others up that don't have the same access. Yeah, I love that approach. Yeah, there was one point when I was really, really angry. And yeah. then my therapist was like, well, do something about it. Like, take a <laughs> podcast or like, write it down. But you have to like, express it because otherwise, yes. it's just gonna like, consume you, right? And um, I was reading this quote recently, too, that it was Helen Keller. She said, like, yes, there is a lot of suffering in the world. But there is also a lot of overcoming it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that, you know, things are in black and white. There's always this gray area. And if there's a way where we can, you know, help make things better, well, we are, you know, contributing to make mm -hmm. this world a better place. Yes, absolutely. So I love that you said that. Yeah. And I think on your point about therapy, Get into therapy. It's the most life-changing thing if you have access and privilege to be able to do that. And I always tell people, like, shop around until you find someone that is the right alignment to what it is that you need, especially if you're looking for someone that's culturally competent and understands your individual experiences, whether as an immigrant, as a woman of color, um, whatever that might be. There's so many options out there. And I wish I had started doing it a long time ago because it would have been really game-changing. So that's another perspective that I, I wish I had done a little sooner. Tasia, and just my last question, if there is anything else that you think it's important to say that I didn't ask you, um, I think you covered such a great range. I think just emphasizing again how important community is. Um, I don't think that we're meant to be doing any of this work in solitude. And I think that there's so much strength and power in being able to be surrounded by like-valued people who also want to make a difference and change the world. And if you have any capacity to start doing that in a way that really serves you as people, like do it, find it. Everything I've done with Accelerate Her Future in the last two or three years has all been virtual. I've never met Gulnaz or any of the team in person. They're, they're all based in Toronto and I haven't had the chance to get out there. And so it, it can be limitless in terms of how you think about community and how you think about that sense of what that means. And especially if we're like people that, you know, haven't, like from my experience, I never really left Calgary outside of traveling when my 20s until I turned 30 when I moved to Vancouver. And that's when my whole worldview really started to change. And it was because I had access now to all of these different experiences and people and this beautiful diversity that I didn't necessarily have access to when I was growing up in Calgary. And so reminding people of that importance of community, of travel, of experiences, those are the things that will 
make you feel really fulfilled when you look back on your life, even if it's not a traditional life that you found yourself in. If you surround yourself by living your life from a lens of experiences and how you can utilize your sense of purpose for service and surround yourself by people who believe in the same things and who are also on the same kind of mission, it's kind of endless what's possible for the things that could be available to you. So I just want to emphasize the importance of that. It's been very, very necessary, especially with COVID. And it's not always accessible for people at work to have that sense of connection and community. And so I just encourage people to think about ways in which you can build that, even if it's in non-traditional capacities as well. That is lovely and so inspiring. <laughs> You've inspired <laughs> me. And Jasia, just before we go, where can people find you? What's your website, socials, etc.? My website is uh, shazianarali.com. So it's S-H-A-H-Z-I-A-N-O-O-R a-L-L-Y dot com. And then you can find The Equity Gap on Instagram at The Equity Gap Podcast. I post once a month different episodes. A lot of them are solo reflections episodes. I have interviews that are lined up as well. So there's more of that. There's also like four years of archives from the color gap and all of the different you know areas of focus that I had on there. And then on LinkedIn, I'm pretty active, although I haven't been for a while because just trying to balance my energy. But I do create a lot of content on LinkedIn and I'm very easy to find because I'm the only Shazia Nirali that exists. <laughs> so, that so cool. you just have to, yeah, you just have to find make sure, make sure to spell my name with two H's. Um, often people forget that. But yeah, I'm usually pretty accessible on all of those platforms. So I'm not great with Instagram on the Equity Gaps um, page, but I also have a personal Instagram. It's at Shazi Noor, S-H-A-Z-Z-I-E-N-O-O-R. And I'm pretty active on there. Very political. So just a warning, if you do follow me on there, you get a lot of politics, a lot of dog photos, a lot of podcast stuff and some personal musings as well. So yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much, Chazia, again, thank for you. your time and for being here and for your vulnerability and telling us about your experiences. I really enjoyed this conversation, so I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to support this show, you can share this episode with your friends, community, or with someone who may benefit from this conversation. You can also rate the show and leave a review and follow it on Instagram at project25.podcast. This is a one-woman show, so if you feel like donating as another way to support, you can go to paypal.me slash project25podcast. And finally, if you'd like to share your story or know someone who does, feel free to email me at andrea.project25 at gmail.com. You can also send me your comments and suggestions in case you want to see someone you like here. And that's all from me. Bye-bye!